there are lots of different categories of healthcare services that involve technology that are not telehealth. Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar with Rehab U Practice Solutions. And earlier this week, I was having a conversation with a client of mine, and we were talking specifically about their device or technology piece. So they were looking at branching into the U.S. physiotherapy market, the physical therapy market. And one of the things that came up, which comes up fairly regularly, when my work with the market penetration roadmap, you can find that at strategy.rehabupracticesolutions.com, was this idea of understanding the value proposition to whom. Obviously, healthcare is very complex, specifically healthcare in the US. We've got the four P's of healthcare the payer, the provider, the policymaker, and the patient. And understanding who your value proposition is targeting allows you to take that and position it most effectively for that stakeholder. Basically what you want to do is you want to align your technology or software with the targeted stakeholder so that you're creating that consistent message to drive business development strategy for that specific healthcare market. For example, a provider, a you know maybe a clinic or something like that has very different goals than a payer. And understanding the differences between those two allows you to make your UVP make sense to the person that you're trying to talk to or sell to. So anyways, just something that I thought I'd throw out there. If you are interested in learning more about that, you can check out our YouTube channel. We've got tons of videos that have come out, tons of videos coming out on the idea of go-to-market strategy and value proposition. If you want to learn more about how we help clients do that, you can go to strategy dot rehab you practice solutions dot com that's strategy dot rehab the letter you practice solutions dot com okay let us dive into this week's episode i know it's been a couple weeks since an episode has dropped and uh, quite honestly it's totally my fault and i am unapologetic <laughs> i ended up being out of town for uh, some work things and then i ended up going totally off the grid for a couple days with my two oldest boys to do some trout fishing if you follow me on linkedin you would have already seen the rainbow trout that my son pulled in he pulled in a nice uh, 13 inch one with a tag which is pretty cool anyways um cool uh, it was a fun trip all around so uh, now I'm back, back in the saddle, and I am uh, looking forward to sharing this conversation with you all. I was able to sit down with, because a lot of my work recently has been with healthcare technology startups and companies looking to either sell services to payers or to providers, maybe provide a platform of some kind or help with some of these value-based arrangements, I was beginning to get exposed a lot to some of this contract 
the contracting piece of that. You know, a lot of my work has to do with maybe uh, getting the the product into the right hands. You know, some of that positioning, that go to market strategy. Um, but the whole back end of that, like what happens after you uh, somebody finds the value in your product and you're going to go sign a contract with how you're going to provide services and the risk you're going to be taking and the compliance requirements, all of that stuff was way over my head. So I was able to get connected with this week's guest. Her name is Caitlin O'Connor. She's a healthcare attorney and her firm is called Nixon Gwilt Law and we'll link to that in the show notes because they are a healthcare innovation law firm Uh, so you know they're highly specialized in this area a lot basically all of the work that she does is on the provider the innovative uh, healthcare provider side of things Um, but their firm also handles the 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 software the platform the startups as well on the contracting piece and even the payers so what we talk about in this episode really is a discussion about some of the trends that she and her her colleagues at the firm have noticed around contracting between healthcare technology companies and provider provider organizations and even payers so we talk a little bit about you know some of the security and information requirements we talk about the delineation between what is privacy what is security and how you know, legally it makes um, there's a difference between the two. We all, you know, on the on my side of things, on the provider side, and then on the on the consulting work that I've done, I always kind of loop it together. Like, oh, obviously, privacy, security, or something we need to take care of. But she talks a little bit about the differences between the two. We talk a little bit about value-based care arrangements or managed care arrangements, and kind of the differences in risk level that uh, that you might see in the in the contract or in the terms of the deal, and then some things around compliance and the like. So hopefully, if you're a provider, provider organization, looking at bringing on board a partner to help deliver some sort of care, uh, either value-based or otherwise, but tech-enabled, this will give you a little bit of insight about, okay, what are the things that we need to be considered about as we bring on board a partner or a technology partner? And if you're a technology company, maybe this will help you with uh, understanding a little bit about the mind of what's the, the, the context and the environment in which these healthcare providers and payers are making decisions and kind of what are those value drivers for them and what they're thinking about as far as technology, ease of use, compliance, all of that. So without further ado, here's Caitlin O'Connor talking specifically about uh, contracting trends in the healthcare technology and healthcare innovation industry. Well, hey, Caitlin, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi there. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm looking forward to talking about all the legal and contractual things around healthcare technology and and all of that. But before we we dive too deep into the weeds, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what got you into contracts and, and legal stuff, and then what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah. So kind of a long story, but I'll try to keep it short. So um, when I was in law school, I didn't really have a good sense of like what I wanted to do until I took a health law class that the health law class I took in law school was the only one I actually enjoyed. So that kind of indicated to me that I wanted to be in health law, but I didn't really know what type. And then once I graduated, I found the current firm that I'm at, which is Nixon Gwilt, which is a healthcare innovation law firm. And I very quickly dove headfirst into all things healthcare technology and healthcare innovation. 
And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, I am not a, I don't enjoy a lot of confrontation in my day to day. So I prefer <laughs> the contracting side. I always say, you know, like I get to do the fun type of law where everybody on the call is usually moving forward toward the same goal versus like being in litigation where, you know, we're fighting over something. So I think just kind of a little bit, a little bit of it was by happenstance. A little bit of it was just sort of figuring out what I actually enjoyed. And, and I think once those two things came together in healthcare technology and transactional work within that space, I really just kind of found what I loved. So that's how I got here. Um, in terms of what I'm doing, uh, doing now, I am a partner at Nixon Gwilt Law, which, like I said, is a healthcare innovation law firm. Um, we work with lots of different types of innovators within healthcare, from innovative healthcare providers to digital health companies to, you know, biotech and life sciences. My focus is, is really more within the innovative healthcare provider and the technology company space. So most of my clients are technology companies that are selling to healthcare providers, payers, health systems, employers, et cetera. So I'm usually, you know, drafting the contract, negotiating it from the seller's perspective and helping my clients understand what types of risk they should or can take and, and how the contracts that they are signing are going to impact their business, both in the short term and the long term. Um, so that's me. That's kind of a, a high level summary. Um, and yeah, if we want to get into more details, if we have more questions about like what I do, definitely let me know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wanted you to come on the show. So we, we work a lot here with uh, healthcare tech companies that are looking to sell to those providers, those payers and all that. So the idea of like, okay, let's get, let's get somebody in here who's a bit of an expert on the contracting piece is very, uh, very good for us. So we talked before a couple of weeks ago about some of these high level, like big trends you see in specifically contracting with uh, software or tech companies um, for virtual care management and that sort of thing. So kind of you, you had laid out three big trends. So why don't you lay out the three big trends and then we'll kind of dive in as we, as we uh, kind of go forward. Sure. Yeah. And I'll quickly just sort of give a little bit more context to what sure. I mean by virtual care management, just so, just to kind of set the stage. So yeah. there are lots of different categories of healthcare services that involve technology that are not telehealth. And yes. that's really important because that means we are outside of the very restrictive healthcare laws that existed prior to COVID and may go back into effect in uh, at the end of 2024. So when I talk about virtual care management, I'm thinking of things like chronic care management, remote patient monitoring, um, transitional care management, behavioral health integration, those categories of sort of remote services that are inherently intended to manage a patient's care over time versus being based on more of a, you know, encounter-based sort of one visit uh, approach. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. And that's where sort of some of the trends that we talked about come into play. I don't remember the specific ones that I mentioned last <laughs> time we spoke, but I have three to say today. So I don't know if they're the same. Um, if there's something that I missed, let me know. Um, but what, what I'm seeing most in this area is first and foremost, I'm definitely seeing more value-based arrangements, more value-based contracts. So a lot of my clients are 
earlier stage companies. We certainly have lots of mature companies as well, but I really enjoy working with early stage companies, getting creative with founders. And where a lot of those clients started out very successfully selling to small provider groups or even smaller hospitals and smaller health systems, they're now getting a lot more interest from value-based organizations like yeah. ACOs, IPAs, um, managed care organizations, healthcare payers coming directly to the company to implement a value-based arrangement with them and sort of provide a particular technology or service to all of their beneficiaries. So that's the first one. And I think we talked about that one. Definitely more value-based arrangements. Um, I'm also seeing very strict security requirements from health systems in particular. So where, you know, a couple of years ago, a contract would say, you as the technology company have to be HIPAA compliant. We're starting to see a lot more specific requirements and a lot stricter requirements. So, you know, just in the past week, I've seen contracts from large healthcare organizations, both actually ACOs and health systems, requiring things like SOC 1 and or SOC 2 audits, high trust certification, or other types of third-party frameworks, compliance with other types of third-party frameworks like ISO or, you know, the, the frameworks from NIST um, and things like that, where previously, again, they were very broad. We just relied on the BIA. I'm now seeing a lot stricter requirements, which as an early stage technology company can be expensive yeah. and a little bit scary if there's not guaranteed revenue coming from that deal. But, you know, for what it, for what it's worth, I think a lot of technology companies can and should expect to see that more. And I think on, you know, on your side, on the buyer side, it makes a lot of sense. We're seeing more and more risk on the cybersecurity front, more ransomware attacks, more breaches, yeah. things like that, as we become a more technology focused world. So, you know, it makes sense. I think it's just kind of the trend that the industry is going. So more value-based arrangements, stricter security, stricter security requirements, and then the third one is one I already kind of mentioned briefly at, at the top of this response, which is more action from payers. So again, lots of my clients started selling to provider groups, hospitals, health systems. I'm now seeing a lot more interest directly from payers. The challenge there, and we can get into it in a minute, is that every one of those conversations is different. Every contract looks different where, you know, my clients could use kind of one template to go out and, and sell to providers or hospitals it's not as easy to use one template contract with every payer that you talk to because they all have different things that they care about and different things that you have to comply with. So, so that's kind of the third one. It's a little bit challenging. It's definitely newer and we're all kind of figuring it out and navigating as we go, including the payers, I think, but, yeah. um, but it's happening and it's exciting because I think it's an opportunity for technology companies to bypass the provider reimbursement and go straight to the payer where, you know, instead of getting indirect payment through the provider for services that are part of a reimbursable service, now some technologies are able to go directly to the payer, get directly pay, paid by them. And it's just a little more certain on the revenue side, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So um, those were the three that we had talked about earlier. So you pass. Oh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the security first, kind of get that out of the way. And then we'll dive into some of these, the the action from the from the payers and value-based contracts and all of that. So from a like a contractual requirement, I think a lot of times when 
when people are thinking about, okay, security, the main thing that they're thinking about is, is HIPAA, but you laid out a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's not just HIPAA that companies need to be worried about. Um, there are other security and privacy requirements. And is that one of those things that is going to be different from contract to contract between like maybe this hospital system requires XYZ and the other hospital system requires something else that might be more or might be less? Or is there more of like a standard, you know, I don't know very much at all about healthcare. It's like secure technology, security and all that. So I'm like, yeah, it sounds HIPAA is is kind of where my go-to, <laughs> but then there's, there's more, it's much deeper than that. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so on the security front, um, you know, HIPAA is actually pretty broad and inten intentionally very flexible. Yeah. The, the standard under HIPAA is that you have reasonable safeguards in place and reasonable is a pretty subjective term. It can mean a lot of different things. So, so to sort of combat that flexibility and add a little more certainty around security, there are third party organizations that have developed their own frameworks or ways that organizations can get certified um, to sort of signal to the industry that they've got secure practices in place and that they're focused on privacy. So a lot of times under a BAA, I see very standard references to HIPAA, just like we've always seen. But on that security front, like I said before, what I'm seeing a lot more of are organizations like health systems. It, I just saw a contract from a large ACO the other day that required um, more specific things. For example, SOC 1 and or SOC 2, those are different types of security audits that technology companies can do. They are usually annual and um, it's sort of a ongoing check on all of the company's security and privacy practices to make sure they're doing things well and to identify gaps and then fill those gaps. So SOC 1 and SOC 2 are pretty common. Another one is high trust certification. That's sort of another framework. And uh, it comes from, I don't exactly remember, but there's um, that's sort of another framework that I see a lot of. And again, that is a third party certification process where you conduct an audit, the um, identify gaps, do penetration, penetration testing, stuff like that, and make sure that your software and your practices are secure and, and again, focused on, on privacy and maintaining privacy. So I would say, you know, SOC audits and high trust are the most common that I've seen at that higher level. In some cases, my clients do not yet have SOC 1 or SOC 2 audit uh, practices in place. They haven't done it yet nor are they high trust certified. And so what we've sometimes done is through negotiation say, okay, you know, you health system will give us 12 months or 18 months to get those first SOC audits out of the way or to get our high trust certification. And in the meantime, we'll comply with ISO 27001, which is just another sort of security framework that doesn't require certification, but is a, is a framework that sets forth very specific security requirements. And so you can kind of get creative in those, yeah. in those negotiations. If you've got the funds and the time to go ahead and get high trust certification or conduct your SOC audits, like do it. Um, Cause I think a lot more buyers are going to require it, but if you don't have it, it doesn't mean that you can't go out and sell to these very same organizations. You're just going to have to get creative. 
um, at least from the from the seller side, from the technology side, yeah. about how to reach that and how to make your customer comfortable. You know, I think one of the the driving forces behind all of this is that hospitals and health systems have been very focused on um, HIPAA, as have other types of healthcare providers, and so they don't necessarily have a robust understanding of security generally. They don't necessarily yeah. have a robust understanding of what security standards are available, what security practices are available or what are normal. They're usually coming to the technology company who's coming to their lawyer or their third party privacy uh, advisor and or security advisor to help them figure that out. So again, I think that's why we see this focus on third party certifications and audits because historically healthcare providers have not been so focused on, you know, specific security practices. Instead, they've been focused really on HIPAA. And so as we kind of shift to a more technology focused environment, they are relying on those third parties to help figure out, to help the industry establish what's appropriate and what's going to keep patient information safe. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm assuming those audits and stuff require some cash, right? They're, they're expensive to, to do, to maintain certification yeah. and to maintain the standards and all that. So there's some planning that's involved there. And it's not just, um, I'm thinking back now to a, a board meeting I was on a, a few months ago. It's not just uh, like healthcare systems, even it's like contracting with, um, with government organizations, right? I think like Texas had a, yeah. a law that if you were going to contract with the state of Texas, you had to have some, it was a very high standard of security and the audits and, and all that that was going to go in place for the information exchange between the government agency and this tech company, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, states have their own frameworks. Governments have their own frameworks. Um, at the end of 2022, the FDA added cybersecurity regulations yeah. to the application and approval process for medical devices. So it's certainly an area where, yeah, it's definitely not just hospitals and health systems. Like I said, I saw a contract with a large ACO provider group that was requiring these third-party um, certifications, definitely government agencies. And then states as well are starting to develop their own privacy and security laws. Just to sort of clarify, there is a difference between privacy and security. A lot of yeah. times they get talked about the same. Privacy is more about protecting data and yeah, what, what the laws to say. The info. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then security are the safeguards you have in place. So two-factor authentication, or if you have physical files, locking the door and who has access to it. So they go hand in hand, of course, but they are slightly different. Most state rules, most state laws are focused more on that privacy, okay. right? Like who has the right to access the data? What can I as a patient do to protect myself? Um, and then those third parties are the ones that establish the security frameworks to maintain the privacy that the state laws yeah. are coming up with. So preventing the law somebody from the hacking privacy. in and holding it ransom and charging you millions of dollars yep. and all that. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it's it's happening across the board. It's certainly not just health systems and hospitals. Um, it's it's something that I think anybody selling in this industry or operating this industry should be thinking about. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, we we'll put that techie stuff aside now let's dive into some of yeah. these the the other two points so you said you you're noticing a lot more value based contracts so let's talk a little bit about then the shift from like a fee for service model which is what's typically been happening to these value based reimbursement um 
schemes or whatever. So how's that affecting the, the contractual agreements between healthcare tech companies and either provider organizations or like you said, the the payers themselves? So I guess let's talk about it on the provider side. So healthcare technology company is now looking at selling to a, a provider and they're now engaged in this value-based uh, reimbursement arrangement. How's that affecting the contract between the two? Yeah, so so a couple of ways. I think the first one is that fee arrangements are changing. So yeah. previously, for the last couple of years, and still actually, this is very common, but a lot of the contracts that I negotiated between my clients and healthcare provider buyers or ACOs or whoever were based on a per patient per month fee. Yeah. So the provider pays a per patient per month fee for all the patients that are on the platform or enrolled in the services. And that was very much or is very much based on what the provider gets reimbursed in that fee-for-service environment. So providers can't split fees with technology companies. They can't share them in ways that are impermissible under state and federal law, uh, uh, fraud and abuse laws. But a lot of times, the only way that these arrangements are economical is by making sure that what's getting paid out is less than what's coming in. And so yeah. a lot of times those fee arrangements were based on reimbursement frameworks. Now, uh, you know, just to sort of clarify that actually a little bit is, you know, a lot of times we see services that are structured around CPT codes. So yeah. the CPT codes for remote monitoring require supply of a deva, uh, supply of a device, interaction with the patient, monitoring and management of the data and the patient's condition, and the fee structure between the technology company and the provider were very similar. It was very much like the, the technology company is going to provide the device. It's going to provide 20 minutes of monitoring. They're going to provide X, Y, and Z and get paid a piece of that. What's changing now is the fee arrangement and then also the way the services are described. So the fee arrangements in particular, I'm seeing more risk-based approaches. So instead yeah. of saying you provider are going to pay me per patient per month and on a flat fee basis, I now as a technology company, I'm going to an ACO and saying, okay, ACO, I understand you're getting judged up against this benchmark that CMS sets. We're going to help you reduce your costs to keep yeah. you below that benchmark. And if we reduce them X amount, we get a percentage of your savings. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of way the way that a lot of value-based arrangements work is that, uh, you know, in a capitated model, for example, the value-based provider gets paid a flat fee to provide a certain set of services, and it's up to them to manage their costs. So rather than billing for a specific encounter, they're getting paid X amount to provide primary care services to a patient. That's kind of how yeah. an ACO works. They get like a global fee to manage it, and they're good to go. Exactly. Exactly. So now technology companies are saying, we'll help you manage your costs so that your margin between your costs and the benchmark is more and we get a portion of that. The challenge with that is there's no one size fits all approach, yeah. right? It's a little bit harder to come up with a repeatable or scalable model from ACO to ACO or from an ACO to a managed care organization because they kind of all have different priorities and different incentives. Where before I could say for all of my customers that are billing part B fee for service, I'm going to charge X amount for 20 minutes of time or X amount for each device. 
ACOs and managed care organizations might not have the same, they might not care quite as much about the per device or the, the per patient feed. They might be focused more on patient engagement and other types of outcomes. Exactly. And yeah. you have to be creative and customize your offering to, to the buyer. So that's where the fee arrangements are changing. They're more customized and they're more based on that sort of overall benchmark or reducing costs or focus on outcomes than they are on each encounter or each sort of block of time that the technology company provides. The second way, like I said, is um, a, uh, what did I say was the second thing that's changing? The fee arrangements and then, oh, the way the services are described. Yes, yes. Right. So, so the second thing I mentioned is that the other thing that's changing is the way the services are described. So again, previously we described the services in a contract based on the specific things that get reimbursed under CPT codes or something very similar. Now, again, the services are pulling in a lot more value drivers, such as patient engagement. So now I, as the technology company, I'm not just providing you with a remote monitoring device and staff to monitor the data. I'm providing you with a remote monitoring device, 90% patient engagement, 85% patient yeah. adherence to the recommended treatment plan, 80% medication adherence, whatever it is. And so we're starting to describe the services and include those types of value drivers more so than we did or had to do in a fee-for-service environment. Yeah. Well, and that in and of itself describes like how complex and individualized it's going to be because not only are you dealing with like uh, the the specific, let's say it's patient engagement, like how do you quantify that? But then also it's like the population that this, you know, that this ACOs might serve might be, what if it's a lot of chronic, you know, diabetes or chronic pain or whatever, like that the population being treated as well will shift some of that, like how this, how the service actually gets delivered and, and what happens in practice, right? Yeah. And I've actually seen some population-based agreements where my clients are going in, you know, a lot of tech, a lot of technology solutions these days are more and more focused on specific populations, yeah. specific disease states. And so I've seen contracts where, you know, my clients go to an ACO and say, we're going to work with your chronic kidney disease population, or we're going to work with your diabetic population and change these factors for them. So there, there is some creativity, room for creativity there as well to focus on those specific populations. It's challenging to do yeah. because- <laughs> That's not how the ACO gets paid, and that's not the way they usually get measured against the benchmark. So you've got to do a lot of work with your own data and with the ACO's data to figure out what those numbers should be. But but yeah, it's it's very customized. It's an opportunity to customize things and to kind of be first movers in that space. But it's also a little bit challenging to just figure out what the right numbers are and how to make it work for patients and providers and the tech company. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's, there's risk all around there. Um, somebody once told me it's, it's, it's better to be a settler sometimes than a pioneer because pioneers get arrows in their backs. And if you do it wrong, I can see how that shifts so much towards like, we're losing big money on this contract trying to manage, you know, just this one population for this ACO or something like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah and then the ACO is afraid for years to buy yeah. more technology to help their diabetic patients or whatever. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah. It burns on both ends. So, um, okay. On the, the side of the, the payers and, and, or the, the providers, what about this action from payers? So how is, how is this working on, 
I guess like a practical level, these payers are reaching directly out to these technology providers and then what? They're requiring providers to utilize this technology or is it more these the technology companies are are kind of on the back end managing the debt the data and the outcomes like how is that working in your in your experience so far yeah so i think it's probably a little bit of all of the above okay. um it certainly depends on yeah it certainly depends on the technology solution there are great data analytics solutions that are helping payers and providers just analyze data and figure out what types of technology solutions to implement what uh -huh. types of direct patient solutions to implement um so that certainly exists on the sort of my on my side what i do well other attorneys in our firm work with data analytics data analytics companies and, and negotiate those types of arrangements. I'm more focused on the, the care management solutions, yeah. right, that are focused directly on the patient care. Um, and, and again, it kind of depends. Sometimes the payers are reaching out. Sometimes my clients are just going through the payers procurement process. Like sometimes okay. they put out a request for applications. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you just message someone on LinkedIn and get yeah. lucky that you messaged the right person. So, so, you know, it's, it's, again, it's not a one size fits all on that front either, like how they're connecting with payers. There are a lot of different options, but once you get to the contracting stage, it also varies, right? So some of my clients get paid directly for technology and the payer provides it to all the beneficiaries on a per patient basis or, you know, focus on outcomes. It could be one or the other. In other situations, the payer says, we'll cover this for our provider organizations that are contracted with us, but you as a technology company still have to go to each of those provider organizations and sell to them. And so okay. what you end up doing is signing a contract, like a, a services agreement with the payer with a statement of work or with an attachment that you then take to each of the provider organizations and say, hey, if you sign this statement of work, these are the things we're going to provide to you and, you know, Optum will cover pay. it yeah. or, yeah, BCBS will cover it or whoever. Um, so, so there are different ways that that works, again, depending on what the technology solution is, who the payer is, and how they're looking at your platform. Apart from all of that, payers are also acquiring software. So they're yeah. actually going out and acquiring software companies. So they have more control over how it gets delivered and how it gets provided to patients. So again, lots of options, lots of creativity. It's a newer area. So I think the key takeaway there is that there, there is no one size fits all. And when you're an earlier stage technology company, sometimes you just have to be willing to be, be creative and take yeah. risk. Yeah, be flexible and take risk with the payer and just sort of see how it goes. Like some of my clients definitely do that. Um, so it varies, but but lots of opportunity for creativity there as well. I think a lot of technology companies in the next couple of years and payers are going to come up with some some really interesting arrangements that we haven't seen before. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, uh, Caitlin, thanks so much for this. We're getting near the near the end here. I always ask people, um, as we're as we're getting ready to end, if there are one or two main takeaways in this case, let's say it's a technology company listening to this and they're trying to figure out, you know, should I go value based? What you know, what are my approaches for an ACO or something like that? What are those? What are a couple main takeaways you would have them walk away with from the episode, specifically around the the contracting side of things? 
Sure. So I think for technology companies that are interested in value-based arrangements, the first thing they have to do is figure out how to tell the story of their data. Lots of remote monitoring companies, lots of care yeah. management companies, lots of data analytic companies have a lot of data, but they didn't set out to collect that data in a way that was necessarily going to make it easy for them to then transition to value-based arrangements and say with certainty the types of outcomes they can provide. They're, they, you know, it's difficult to say how much you're going to reduce the cost for an ACO, how much you're going to improve patient engagement without really solid data that is organized and reliable. Yeah. And so, you know, you may not have gone through a clinical trial where you had a very specific structure for the data and very specific ways you were analyzing it and looking at it, but it might be time to start thinking about it in that way and to start uh -huh. to think about your data in a very structured way so that you can you can you have comfort and confidence in what you're promising to a payer or an ACO in a value-based agreement, but also so that the story that you're telling and the value that you're selling makes sense for the person you're talking to. ACOs care about something different than payers, exactly. providers care about something different than ACOs, and it just varies. So, you know, think about your data, think about how to tell the story of your data and make sure that the story you're telling makes sense for the, the person that you're talking to, for the buyer that, that you're trying to sell to. Yes. Yeah. We talk about That's that all the time. You gotta you gotta yeah. answer the question value to whom because they're they're all looking at yeah. it different. So awesome, exactly. Um, Caitlin, I'm sure you're gonna get some some responses here. So where can people find you? Find more about what you're doing. Maybe even reach out for help on the contracting side or somebody else. Maybe one of your colleagues on the on the security and and privacy side. Where can people find you? Work with you. All of, all of the above. Sure. Yeah. You can always find me on LinkedIn. I think that's how you and I initially yes. connected. Um, Caitlin O'Connor on LinkedIn. Um, you can email me. I will maybe in the show notes, we can put my email sure. address in there or even our, our firm website, which is just yeah. nixongwiltlaw.com. N-I-X-O-N-G-W-I-L-T-Law.com. I'm on there. I think you can get my email from there. If not, I'll send it to you, Rafi, and we can put it in the show notes. Sure. Um, but yeah, just shoot me an email, message me on LinkedIn, whatever makes sense. I'm open, very happy to talk to whoever has questions or you know just wants to kind of learn more. Yeah, awesome. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So thanks so much. Have Perfect. a great one. Thank you so much. You too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Caitlin O'Connor, specifically about the idea of technology and contracting, what goes into some of these contracts, some of the back end, some of the negotiations, the requirements on all the parties and, and what they look like. For me, it's just fascinating to hear that kind of, uh, this kind of discussion because it's one of those things that as a clinician, I was never really privy to uh, as a staff level clinician and as a consultant working with some of these organizations on the business development side of things, it was one of those like, well, Business development is done. You land to the you land to the deal, and we're gone. Um, so it's it's interesting to see kind of the the inner workings of some of these contracts and what really is included and what's involved in all of that. So, anyways, uh, thank you to Caitlin for sharing her insight and expertise in this area. We're gonna link to her um, her LinkedIn profile and the the Nixon Gwilt Law Firms 
website on the show notes. So you can head on over to rehabupracticesolutions.com, click on the drop down menu for insights and under the podcast uh, for this week, for this episode, the links will be there. If you are one of those uh, people uh, that's interested in exploring this more and talking with an expert, she's definitely one of those people to talk to. So um, one of the things that I thought was very interesting, and you know, I think about this kind of a lot throughout my day, especially when I'm co- having conversations with prospective clients and clients in the healthcare industry that are bringing some kind of tool or technology to market. And there tends to be a lot of angst maybe around some of the rules with CMS and will telehealth be here in, you know, in a couple years, once the, once it all goes away, you know, once the, the things expire at the end of 2024, like, like Caitlin mentioned to me, I've always thought of the, the real value the potential value that healthcare technology brings to the table isn't so much like these one-on-one visits or telehealth and like direct service delivery through virtual means, which does have its place. But it's really, like she said, the value is in these, at least the way I see it, the value is in these other software tools or technologies that enable like long-term care management, like remote patient monitoring or communications or streamlining the the actual course of care or the process of care that doesn't necessarily require maybe a billable encounter, like in this fee-for-service model where you're if you're not drilling, you're not billing, but something that allows contact, a touch point, an overall and general smoothness in the continuity of care for somebody that might have a chronic disease like diabetes or even chronic musculoskeletal pain or something like that, but that doesn't necessarily require a heads-up or one-on-one telehealth visit. Um, I really think that in the next several years, as some of these payers and payer organizations begin exploring, really diving into more of these lump sum payment models and other value-based arrangements, maybe shared risk or shared savings programs or something like that. The value in these tools, and I was just having a conversation with a client about this yesterday, the value in the tool is not so much that you're going to be able to bill telehealth with it or bill RTM even or RPM with it. It's the fact that what the technology is going to allow in the long run is a decrease in the cost of delivering care to that individual or managing this individual's chronic, complex medical situation. And that really is the value. Um, Sure, there's short-term gains maybe in some fee-for-service arrangements where you can bill for this code or that code. But in my mind, what I'm thinking of is like the long-term value that these tools are providing us is really the ability to effectively manage a patient's condition without or at a fraction of the manpower, the clinician's time, as was once needed without that tool. So anyways, just my thoughts on the subject. So if you like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. It helps people find us. If you want to see videos of the interviews, we have those up on the web page on the YouTube channel. Um, just search for rehabupracticesolutions.com. There's a whole playlist of the video interviews for the episodes. And if you want to learn how Rehab You Practice Solutions can help you if you are a healthcare technology or innovation company, head on over to RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. There's more than one way to click a link somewhere and get scheduled on the calendar to have a conversation with me. And I'd love to talk with you about what you've got going on and if there's any way I can help. Until the next time, folks, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. 
Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.